how many of you like cream cheese on your bagel? Okay, quite a few. Uh, what about jelly? Anyone like jelly on their bagel? Yeah. Well, what about just butter? Anyone just butter people? Okay, quite a few butter people. I see the hand, okay. John Polonic of Massachusetts, he likes butter on his bagel. In fact, he likes butter a lot. And recently, John ordered a bagel with butter at Dunkin' Donuts. Yet once he got his bagel and he took his first bite, he noticed it just, it just tasted just a little bit different. Have you ever had something like that happen before? You, you bite into something, but it just tastes a little bit off? So curious, he, he began to ask. He went up to the, the person who prepared the bagel and said, hey, you, uh, you put real butter on this, right? The person's like, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I put real butter on it. He's like, okay. So took another bite. Said, Man, something doesn't taste just quite right. So he probed a little deeper. He went and he asked the manager, can you, can you tell me, what, what did you put on my bagel? You know what he discovered? He wasn't served real butter, but a butter substitute. Gasp! Now tell me, what would you do in that situation? You know what John did? He sued Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> and you know what? He won. Now, uh, uh, I don't know about you, but that seems a little trivial to me, maybe. And you know what? John's lawyer agrees that it's trivial. Yet while John's lawyer acknowledged that his client's complaint is a minor thing, he still chose to go ahead with the lawsuit. And you know why? You know his reason was? Because of this quote. This is what John's lawyer said. He said, quote, to stop the practice of representing one thing while selling a different thing. Now, was it wrong for Dunkin' Donuts to misrepresent what they were offering? Yes. Even despite how trivial the lawsuit might have been. But you know, sometimes, sometimes, people can be disappointed not because of misrepresentation, like in the case of Dunkin' Donuts, but because of incorrect expectations. Have you ever experienced that before? My guess is you have. And, and tell me, how, how, do we, how do we often typically respond when things don't go the way we expect them to go? You know what we typically do? We typically leave, do we not? I mean, do we not walk out of movies that are different than what we expect? Do we not leave restaurants when the menu doesn't leave, meet our expectations? Think about a job. Do we not leave jobs that are different than what we expect? Or what about marriages? How many people get divorced because their marriage was not what they expected it would be? Going into marriage, the husband and wife, they have 
certain expectations, and once it's clear that that marriage isn't meeting their expectation, they leave. What I'm trying to get at, and I, and I think you would agree, is that most often our default response when things don't go the way we expect them to go is we bail. We leave. Let me ask you, what kind of life do you expect to have by following Jesus? In other words, what do you expect the Christian life to be like? For several months, we've been working our way through the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. And while there are many characters who play important roles in the overall story of this book, the person that the author chooses to shine the spotlight on is David. As we've seen, David, God's anointed king. And as we've mentioned before, the one person whom the Bible gives the most space to is David. More ink is spilled on David than any other person. And this is because when we see David at his best, we get a glimpse into the heart of the son of David, God's true and greater king, Jesus. You see, King David is the preview to the feature film that is Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. For example, last week we looked at 2 Samuel chapter 9. Do you remember what we learned from that chapter? We learned this, that God's king gives grace to undeserving people. God's king gives grace to undeserving people. In 2 Samuel 9, David seeks out Mephibosheth. What did we learn about Mephibosheth? He was a poor, crippled orphan living in a remote town deserving of death. And why does David seek him out? He does so in order to grant him life and to adopt him into his family. David, God's anointed king, in the, in the un unfolding story of God's plan, he gives grace to Mephibosheth. And friend, that's precisely what God's greater king, Jesus Christ, does for us. Right? The Bible teaches that we all are like Mephibosheth. We are sin-crippled orphans, deserving of death, who hide in shame. Yet King Jesus, what does he do? Does he leave us alone to die in our sin? Rightfully, no. He seeks us out. He grants us eternal life. Why? So that he could adopt us into his family. God is good, amen? God's king gives grace to undeserving people. This is what 2 Samuel chapter 9 is all about. So, what does it look like then to follow God's anointed king? What kind of life can we expect to follow this good and gracious and loving king? This king who David in 2 Samuel points to who's ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Well, I believe our passage this morning answers that question. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 10. That's page 261 in that white paper Bible. We have some in the seats in front of you. I'd encourage you to follow along with me there. That's page 261. Follow along with me as I read 2 Samuel 10. So this is just after David has extended grace to Mephibosheth. We read this. And after this, the king of the Ammonites died. And Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his messengers to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. Now tell me, what do we see David doing in these opening verses? What we see David doing is he's continuing his quest to show kindness to others. Notice chapters 10 starts the very same way as chapter 9, doesn't it? At the beginning of chapter 9, David plans to show kindness to someone from the house of Saul. Remember this? Well, here at the beginning of chapter 10, David plans to show kindness to someone from the house of Nahash, namely his son, Hanun, the Ammonite king. And we learn in these, in these couple verses that um, Hanun's father, Nahash, you'll recall, was defeated by Saul in 1 Samuel 11. But it appears that he aided David at some point, it's not recorded, but he evidently aided David while David was living as a refuge, uh, fleeing the, the hand of Saul. He showed him kindness. Now Nahash has died, so notice what David does. David sends his servants, his ambassadors, to extend his kindness to the son of Nahash, to express sympathy for the death of Nahash. It was, it was an unexpected and kind thing to do. In fact, for us to really understand this well, you need to know that David's kindness is what links these two chapters together, chapter 9 and chapter 10. As several commentators have pointed out, the writer presents David as a king who is all about kindness. And showing kindness to others. So in obedience, I want you to notice, the followers of King David, in obedience to King David's command, they go to extend his kindness to now the new Ammonite king. Now names are important, right? They mean things. And you know what Hanan means? This new Ammonite king? His, na his name means grace or favor. Now let's see how he responds to this kind act of David. Look with me at verses 3 and 5. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you, 
that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half their beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. And I'll let your imagines figure out what that actually meant. Verse 5, when it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. Tell me, did Hanan live up to his name gracious? Did he? No, notice he was anything but gracious. You know what he was? He was suspicious. For what does he do? He disgraces David's servants by shaving off their beards, a sign of emasculation, and cutting off half their clothes to expose their backsides. So David, being the kind king that he is, he does, he does his best to try to minimize the humiliation of his men. He says, stay in Jericho till their beards grow back. Now, why would he say that? Well, what you have to understand, this was no schoolboy prank. Leviticus 19.17 forbade Israelite men from trimming the corners of their beard. And so cutting the beard, listen to me, was an assault on their identity as Israelites. This was a serious offense. And we know this is the case because of what the Ammonites do next. You know what that is? This is I'm telling you, the Bible is not boring. There are boring preachers, to be sure, guilty. But the Bible is not boring. Because you know what the Ammonites do? They hire Syrian mercenaries. They get ready for war. Look at verse 6. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, they knew this was going to upset him. The Ammonites sent and hired Syrians of Beth Rahab and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and the king of Micaiah with 1,000 men, and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. Okay? These mercenaries, these would have been like the Bubba Fetts of David's day, okay? These guys were hired to kill, okay? So notice how David responds there in verse 7. Oh, my failing eyes. There, okay. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab. Now, that should ring a bell. And all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rahab and the men of Tob and Micaiah were by themselves in the open country. Okay, so the stage is set. The battle is about to take place. But there's a problem for David's men. That is, they were surrounded on both sides. So notice what Joab, the commander of David's armies, decides to do. Look at verse 9. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abiashai, 
his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. And then, then notice what he says. This is what we're going to focus in on this morning. Verse 12, he says, Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abiashai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. Battle over. <laughs> Notice how quickly it ends. Now, do you know that the only time God is mentioned in this entire chapter is in Joab's speech? Whatever else his faults may have been, especially as we look at the first chapters of this book, this is the first reference of him since the murder of Abner, I want you to note that Joab has faith in God. Yet what is also unique about this chapter is the brevity of the battle. I mean, notice how quickly the battle is over in the next verses, 13 and 14. As several commentators have pointed out, what is most important to the author of 2 Samuel in this chapter is the speech of Joab. I mean, there are tons of details the author could have given us about the battle, but he doesn't. No, he's, he puts all that aside, and what he brings to the forefront, to the surface, is the speech of Joab. So we're going to give some attention to that more in a moment here. But notice also how Joab divides his men in half. He put some with his brother and kept others with himself. Indeed, lots of things in this chapter are cut in half, aren't they? The Hebrew word for half is actually used for the beards and the robes of David's servants that were cut. And notice the armies here are also divided in what? Half. Some have suggested that this, be, this begins a new theme that's going to occupy the later chapters of this book and especially Israel's history with the kingdom being divided. But for now, I want you to notice Israel is victorious. So when the Syrians flee from before Joab, notice the Ammonites give up. That's verse 14. Yet for some reason, <laughs> and I don't understand this, the Syrian mercenaries regroup and call for reinforcements. That's verses 15 through 16. And a battle is re-engaged and David is victorious. Look at how the, the chapter ends there in verse 19. The last line, after David defeats these guys once more, the last line, so the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. You think? <laughs> amen and amen. Um, in his book, I'm a Stranger Here Myself, author Bill Bryson 
recounts a lecture he once heard on marketing and the contrast between how products were being sold in Britain versus America. And he writes this. It's pretty interesting. He says, the gist of the program was that the same product had to be sold in entirely different ways in the two markets. And advertising in Britain for cold relief capsules, for instance, would promise no more than it might make you feel a little bit better. You would still have a red nose and be in your pajamas, but you'd be smiling again if wanly. And he says this, a commercial for the same product in America, however, would guarantee total instantaneous relief. A person on the American side of the Atlantic who took this miracle compound would not only throw off his PJs and get back to work at once, he would feel better than he had years for years and finish the day having the time of his life at a bowling alley. <laughs> Big difference, right? Now, there's much we could say about Bryson's observation. However, his overall point is, is rather clear, and that's this, and I, and I don't want to hurt your feelings because I'm part of this group, but his point is simply this, that Americans, we have problems with expectations. <laughs> we have problems with expectations. And sadly, it's not just limited to over-the-counter drugs. It can also seep into our understanding of the Christian life, which is why we need the text I just read. Because you know what this text teaches? It illustrates this important truth, and that is obeying God's king draws opposition from the world. Obeying God's king draws opposition from the world. You want to know what to expect if you're going to follow God's true anointed king, God's anointed king. And this moment in redemptive history is David, but that just points forward to the reality we see in the New Testament with the greater king, Jesus Christ, and the same is true. Friend, obeying God's king draws opposition from the world. I mean, notice how clearly this truth is illustrated. Remember, David is portrayed as the kind king, showing kindness. And he wants to show kindness to Nahash's son. So David, what does he do? Does David go, his, go himself? Does David go himself? Instead, he sends out his ambassadors. He says, go share this message of kindness. And what do they receive when they go to the Ammonites to share this message of kindness? How are they treated? They're shamed. They're insulted. And friend, the biblical witness testifies that this text, what we see happening here, is not an anomaly. No, this passage illustrates what the New Testament authors repeatedly teach, and that is when you follow God's king, you will, not might, you will experience opposition and at times persecution from the world. I mean, were we not reminded of this reality last week during our time of prayer for the persecuted church? So let me ask once more, Christian, what kind of life do you expect to have following King Jesus? 
obeying God's king will draw opposition from the Lord, from the world. So how are we to live in light of this reality? Well, I believe our passage shows us there are three actions I think this text illustrates that we must take if we're going to live well as faithful servants of our King Jesus. And the first one is this, and that is, as followers of our King, we should expect mistreatment. Notice again what we see happening there in verse 5. After David sends them out to extend kindness to the Ammonites, Verse 4, rather, so Hanan took David's servants and shaved off half of the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. Uh, this past Tuesday, uh, Alex Tibbetts sent out an invite to our men's group, our men's ministry here at Faith, to go see the movie C.S. Lewis, The Most Reluctant Convert. Uh, and I was glad he did. It was an excellent movie. It was very well done. In fact, I told all of those, all of us from Faith there, I said, look, anything good that comes from this movie will be used as a sermon illustration at some future point. And now here we are. <laughs> We're at this point. <laughs> now, uh, truthfully, there are many statements made by the actor who portrayed C.S. Lewis that really stuck with me. But one in particular towards the end of the film, I've really been kind of mulling over. It was a quote taken from Lewis's book, The Weight of Glory. Perhaps you've heard it, heard it before. I, here's actually the quote from the book. This is what Lewis says. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat but it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And Lewis's point is that every person we come in contact with, every person we come in contact with has a soul that will never die. Without exception, every person you interact with is immortal. They have a soul that will never die. I mean, just think about the, the weight of that statement. Every person you interact with, they will spend eternity in one of two places. Either eternal, everlasting joy with God and the new heavens and the new earth, or eternal judgment and suffering in hell. David's servants were to bring a message to extend kindness, the kindness of God's king. And what did they get in return? Did they receive hugs? Did they get a high five? Did they say, attaboy? What kind of reception did they receive? They were humiliated. They were mistreated. And beloved, God's word compels me to share with you that we ought to expect the same when we, and as we faithfully obey our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
We ought not to expect hugs from this world, but rather opposition. I mean, as we looked at last week, has Jesus himself not promised as much in John 15, 20? When he says, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. So, so here's the question I want us to consider just for a moment at, at this point, and that is this, okay? King David sent out his servants to share and extend kindness to the Ammonites, right? The citizens of the kingdom at that time, in obedience to the king, went out to extend kindness, Here's my question. What do you think, Faith, is the kindest thing you could do to the immortal souls that you come in contact with throughout your week? This is to say, what do you think is the kindest thing you could do to your unbelieving friends, family members, coworkers, and neighbors? People who have a soul that will never die. Could I suggest to you that the kindest thing you could possibly do is talk to them about the salvation that is offered in the Lord Jesus Christ? Friend, what could be more important than the eternal destiny of their souls? Now, this is not to say that caring for their temporary and physical needs is not important. Absolutely, it is important. And we should be quick to help. But let us not deceive ourselves into thinking that we have truly loved our lost and unbelieving friends by simply caring for their physical needs while failing to point them to the one who can save their souls. Can I ask, when was the last time you shared the gospel with an immortal soul? When was the last time you invited them to come and to see Jesus, to look at his claims, to consider the gift of salvation he freely offers? David's servants were sent out to offer kindness to Nahash's son. Have we not been commissioned by King Jesus to go out into all the world and proclaim the kindness and mercy found in the gospel? Now, should we expect mistreatment? Yes. Yet that shouldn't stop us from obeying our king, not only because he commanded us to share this good news, but because our Savior, think about this, our Savior loved us so much that he endured the greatest mistreatment in the history of the world by dying for sinners, though he was an innocent man so you could be saved and have the hope of eternal life. This good news that comes from God's Word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, go tell it on the mountain, over the hill and everywhere, because it's good news, it's not good advice. It's the good news, like Clint mentioned, that though we are messed up in our sin, God comes down to us in Jesus Christ 
and does everything necessary for our sinful souls to be forgiven and saved and given the righteousness of Jesus. And this salvation is received simply by faith. Let us be quick to share it. Second, I believe this text invites us and encourages us, in light of this truth, to employ courage. Look again at Joab's speech there in verse 12, the first couple of words. Notice what he tells them as they're getting ready to fight. And he doesn't know what's going to happen, but what does he say? Verse 12, be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. Now, uh, I am like Winnie the Pooh. I am a man of small intelligence, okay? And it, it always helps at times to think about what words actually mean. Let me ask you, what is courage? Lack of fear? Bravery? Anyone else want to chime in? No? Act in spite of fear? Okay. Standing fast a little longer when you're afraid? Against odds? How about John Wayne? Let's see what he has to say. John Wayne says this, similar to what I've heard here, courage is being scared to death, but settling up anyway. What do you think? Is that a good definition? Pretty good? Uh, Webster would agree. Webster defines courage this way as the ability to do something that frightens one. But you know what? I, these are all good, and, and far be it for me to disagree with Webster, or John Wayne for that matter. But I believe each of these definitions is, is missing a very important element. In his book, Stepping Up, author Dennis Rainey has a quote from Ambrose Redmoon, and I believe it accurately captures the essence of courage, of courage. And he says this, he says, courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the judgment that something else is more important. It's not the absence of fear, but whatever is fearful in front of me, I'm still going to act because I've made a judgment that there's something else more important than whatever faces me. And notice that's exactly what we see happening with Joab. For notice, Joab is inviting God's people, listen, to make a judgment. For what does he say? He says, be of good courage and let us be courageous. Why? For our people and for the cities of our God. He's saying something is more important than the fear of death on the battlefield, Israelites. He's like, you know what's more important than the fear on the battlefield? He's like, that's the Lord and his people. You see, Joab is making a judgment. And faith, this is the same judgment you and I need to make in order to live faithful lives to God in a world that at times will oppose us in our obedience to King Jesus. How is it that we can remain faithful and obedient to God when we know we're going to face opposition from the world? You know how? It is because we believe we've made the judgment that something is more important than whatever opposition might come our way. Namely, what's more important 
is the glory of God and the good of his people. Amen? Friend, Christian, have you settled this in your heart? Have you made this judgment? Has it been resolved in your mind? that the glory and majesty of our God and the good of His people is more important than whatever might come my way. If your greatest commitment is your physical well-being, the avoidance of conflict or awkward conversations, friend, I promise you, you will crumble under this opposition from the world. But if you make the glory and the majesty of God and the good of his people your chief desire, you know who you're going to be like, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego withstanding the fiery furnace. Let us be these people. Let us heed Joab's exhortation. Be courageous. Be courageous for the glory of God and the good of his people. And then lastly, we must exercise faith. Notice the second half of Joab's speech. It's stitch it on a pillow. It's so important. He says this, Be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Uh, several years ago, I was talking with an acquaintance of mine who was going through a really, just an exceptionally hard situation. This acquaintance of mine, she was not a Christian, and I vividly remember her telling me how she was able to cope through all the troubles she was experiencing and, and what it, how she was able just to manage all this. You know what she told me she did? She said, Aaron, this is what I did. I just tell myself each and every day, I say to myself, it will all get better. It will all get better. I, just have, I tell myself that each and every day, it will all get better. She believed that somehow in some way, her circumstances were going to improve. That was her hope. You know, interestingly enough, I've noticed that Christians do the exact same thing. When facing hard or difficult circumstances, they tell themselves in a more baptized language, but they basically say, I don't need to worry. Things are going to get better for me. My circumstances are going to improve. I'm going to be more comfortable. Things are going to get better for me. Indeed, they believe that's what it means to exercise their faith in the midst of trials. The circumstances, it's all going to turn around. It's all going to get better. Yet I want you to notice that's not what we see in Joab, is it? And faith, this is really important. Please pay careful attention to what Joab says. He does not believe that God will make his circumstances better or more comfortable for him. And mind you, He's standing in the middle 
and he's got enemies on this side and on this side. Joab does not believe that his circumstances are just going to get better. No. Joab believes, and here's his confidence, that God would do what seems good in God's sight. Big, big difference. Joab's confidence was not that he knew in advance what the Lord would do. He didn't. But that the Lord would do what seems good to him. And that could be victory or death on the battlefield. Either way, Joab found comfort and assurance knowing that God's will would be done. In his excellent commentary on 2 Samuel, pastor and author John Woodhouse makes this insightful comment on Joab's speech. Woodhouse writes this. He says, the words are, referring to Joab, the words are a wonderful expression of faith in God. Faith is knowing that the Lord is good and that he does what is good. What is good is decided by God, not us. But with this faith, we can face any enemy any situation, any threat with the strength that comes from this faith. As we walk honestly before God, doing what he approves, he will give us strength that surpasses whatever power confronts us. And friend, this is the essence of true faith. Indeed, this is the truth, Faith Community Church. Let me, let me put on my, my counselor hat here just for a moment and say, this is the truth we need to speak to our hearts on a daily basis. For what ought we say to ourselves when we don't know whether, let's say, a cancer treatment will be successful or not? What ought we say to our hearts when we don't know if we'll earn enough to make ends meet? What ought we say to ourselves when we don't know if our marriage is going to make it. It ought not be this. God will make my situation more comfortable for me. It's all going to work out for me. No, it ought to be instead what Joab says, and that is, the Lord will do what is right in his sight. Indeed, is this not the counsel the psalmist provides in our memory verse for this month? What does the psalmist say in 119.68? In fact, let's, I think it's appropriate. Let's say it together. Ready? Psalm 119.68. Ready? You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Christian, do you believe that? Do I believe that? That God is good. And he does what is right in his sight. Even when allowing the painful things in our lives. Because if you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, he has brought the painful thing into your life for your good, and that's to make you more like his son Jesus. And friend, if you have any doubts that God is good and that he does good, my, here's my final encouragement to you is this. Look to the cross. For what do we see in the cross of Christ? We see our Savior being mistreated, 
in order to save sinful, cowardly people like you and me. Christ suffered the death we are owed for our sins so that we would be forgiven of our sins and then receive the righteousness he has earned all by faith. Friend, what more could Jesus do to prove to you that he is good and that he does good? Friend, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation? Don't, don't misunderstand me. The Bible doesn't say trust your own righteousness to save you. It says forsake it and go all in trusting the righteousness of another, Jesus, that he did everything necessary to spare you the judgment you are owed for your sin and to be forgiven by God. If you haven't done that, if you'd like to know more, I'd encourage you to talk with me or one of the elders after the service. We'd love to tell you more about Jesus. For those of you who have put your trust in Christ, the good news of the scripture is that this king reigns. He reigns forevermore. He is good and does good. Amen? Let's pray.